Good morning. This is verses 18 through 27. And Sadducees came to him, who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and then he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Thank you, Sharon. Let's welcome Tim Kane as he comes to teach us from this passage. Well, it's great to be here with you this morning, and uh, this is a beautiful passage. I'm excited to, to get to talk about it. Let's uh, pray. Dear God, we just ask that you would open our eyes to this reality, this reality we talked about last week, this reality that we celebrate, like we heard every Sunday, this reality of the resurrection, that this life isn't all that there is, that... Um, the things of this world don't need to be clung to and made into, uh, into to things that we build our lives around because this life uh, is very short compared to the eternity that we spend with you. So, God, thank you for the resurrection. I can't imagine the, the despair, the darkness, the sadness, the misery if there were no resurrection, the pointlessness of life. And uh, so thank you for that. Open all of our eyes to understand and to believe it and show us how it should impact the way we live. In Jesus' name, amen. We live in in a world where where every belief that that people have is contested. Uh, What I mean by that is it doesn't matter what you believe. There are intelligent people uh, who you will find somewhere that believe something different. Uh, just think about it. You've got atheism. You've got agnosticism. You've got religion. If you pick religion, you've got Eastern religions and Western religions. If you pick Western religions, you have Christianity and Islam and Judaism. If you pick Christianity, you've got thousands of denominations, hundreds of offshoots, all using the same Bible, many of which disagree on some significant things, whatever you believe, it's going to be contested. No matter what you believe, intelligent people are going to be out there who believe differently. And what this does and the impact this has had on us is that it's caused our culture to embrace an idea of open-mindedness, an idea of refusing to draw conclusions. Uh, it's, it's ultimately led to a lack of, of commitment, 
because if, if every view is contested, you don't want to give your life for one that may not be true. Practically what this means is it's really easy for us to say that we believe something and yet find that it doesn't really impact the way that we're living, that we don't really live out the implications of many of the things that we claim to believe. Kierkegaard, who lived 150 years ago, uh, he saw this in his day. He says this, Our age is an age without passion. Everyone knows a great deal. We all know which way we ought to go, and we all know the different ways we can go, but nobody is moving. He went on to say how he longed for things to be different. He said, if I could only have the experience of meeting a passionate thinker, that is someone who honestly and honorably expressed in their life what they believed to be true. Well, this morning, that's what, what we're going to do is we're going to take a passage in the scripture where one of the key beliefs of Christianity is contested. In that sense, we're going to find things haven't really changed that much since Jesus' day. But in the midst of this contested belief, I want to introduce you to a truly passionate thinker. That is someone who honestly and honorably lived out what he claimed to believe. And as we do that, I want you to consider two things. As we look at this debate, I want you to consider which side are you on? What, what do you believe about this disagreement? And then the second thing I want us to consider is, are we honorably, are we passionately, are we honestly expressing in our lives what we claim to believe? So let's look at Mark chapter 12. Uh, we'll start with verse 18. The Sadducees come to Jesus. Mark introduces us to them. And the first thing he wants us to know about them is they don't believe in the resurrection. You see, the Sadducees were a group of rich, influential people who worked in the temple, and much of their wealth and political power came from assimilation with the Roman Empire and with the Romans. Um, this is one of the reasons that they chose to reject the resurrection. So they were afraid if too many people believed in the resurrection, it might inspire people to revolt against Rome. If you believe in a resurrection, then you're more likely to, to risk your life to, to find freedom than if you think this life is all there is. And so they didn't want people believing in the resurrection because they didn't want any revolt against Rome. A second reason that they didn't believe in the resurrection is because the Sadducees only believed in the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses. They didn't believe in any of the other books. And uh, in, the, in the first five books, they never found what they considered to be explicit proof of the resurrection. That's why... They didn't believe in it. So in verse 19, they come to Jesus to challenge his belief in the resurrection. And they do this by reminding him of one of Moses' laws. That's what they do in verse 19. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take a widow, the widow, and raise up offspring for his brother. This was a real law that God had given to his people. It was to ensure that their family lines continued and that the inheritance of each son would be passed down to the next generation. So they remind Jesus of this real law that they all agreed on. But then they come and tell him a story and ask him a question. Listen to what they say. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife and then he died. He left no offspring. 
The second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For all seven had her as a wife. You can tell what they're trying to do, right? They're trying to expose the absurdity of believing in a literal resurrection by showing that it can't answer this question. You can almost see the smirk on their face, right? In the resurrection, you know, the one you believe in, the one where everybody gets a physical body and they actually rise again from the dead. When that happens, tell me this, whose wife is she going to be? Because they all seven had her. Their assumption is that there is no good answer to that question. You can see that assumption, right? There's no good answer to that question. And if you can't answer that question, then it proves the resurrection can't exist. That's their argument. So here you have this group of wealthy, well-educated men that believe they have finally found the question Jesus cannot answer. Now, in Mark 12, 24, we see Jesus' response, and it's not like uh, the most, I don't know what word to use, it's not like politically correct, or it's not, he's not, he, he, he doesn't hold any punches. Uh, in fact, it seems like he's kind of trying to knock the smirk off of their face. I mean, imagine Jesus' response is just, is this not the reason you're wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God? That's like, uh, that's probably not what they were expected back, right? I mean, he came in hard. They, they, they came in with their little question. He says, listen, you don't know the scriptures, you don't know the power of God, and you are wrong. Of course, what I love about Jesus is he doesn't just make these claims, right? Like, people talk hard all the time, right, and make claims. But he goes on then to demonstrate and to prove both of these claims that he makes, He begins by demonstrating to the Sadducees that they do not have any concept of the power of God. You see, the Sadducees are assuming that in the next world, everything's going to be just like it is in this world. You're going to have marriage, you're going to have family, you're going to have babies, you're going to have children. It's going to be just like this world. And because they think that the next world is just like this world... They know things are going to get really complicated. In fact, it's going to be impossible to figure out what to do when you start throwing blended families and multiple marriages in the equation. But Jesus responds like this in verse 25. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. Basically what Jesus is saying is this. The new world is not identical to the old world. In the new world, people aren't going to get married. They're not even going to be married. They're not going to have sex. They're not going to have babies. They're not going to raise families. This isn't what the new world is like. See, the Bible is clear that the ultimate purpose of marriage, in fact, the reason God invented marriage in the first place, was to be a picture of Christ's relationship to the church. It's to be a reflection. It's to be a foretaste. It's to be a parable of Christ's resurrection, or Christ's relationship to the church. But in heaven, we're not going to need the parable because we're going to have the real thing. We're not going to need the picture because we're going to have the person. 
Marriage will no longer be necessary in heaven because we have the real thing that the best of marriage in this life is meant to just be a foretaste of. Now for some people, understanding this makes heaven kind of hard to get excited about. I mean, you see, for some people, marriage, sex, having babies, raising kids, these are some of the best parts of life. And so it's like, okay, so heaven is going to not have all my favorite parts of this life. So that's exciting. So, uh, so when do I, where do I sign up, right? I mean, like, like that, it, it's hard to imagine really wanting to go there. There's even a popular country song that displays this attitude by Kane Brown. He says, everybody's talking about heaven like they just can't wait to go, saying how it's going to be so good, so beautiful. But lying next to you in this bed, I ain't convinced because I don't know how heaven, I don't know how heaven could get better than this. You see his argument, right? If, if heaven's not going to have me and you laying next to each other, then I don't really want to go there. It can't get better than this. You know how Jesus responds to Cain Brown? He, sa- he says, you simply don't understand the power of God. I mean, who invented marriage? Who invented sex? Who invented children? Whose idea was everything beautiful and good you've ever experienced in your life? Who spoke it into existence? God did. God made everything good in this world. He made love and sex and marriage and waterfalls and friendships and family and chocolate and mountains and sports. He made the stars. He made the sun. He made the sky. He made it all. Guess what? It took him six days and a couple of breaths to do it. That's it. But heaven? Heaven cost God the blood of his only son. And Jesus says that what he has been doing since he returned is preparing a place for us. You know what that means? It means he's had plenty of time to invent things better than sex and babies and marriage to fill heaven with. The Sadducees thought the resurrection wasn't possible because God couldn't figure out what to do with people that have been married more than once. <laughs> like, what kind of God are you believing in that can't figure out that problem? I mean, that's so crazy. He says, you're wrong. You have no clue at all about the power of God. Heaven is not like this world. It's going to be infinitely better. Heaven, I want you thinking about this. Heaven begins where the greatest pleasure of this world ends. That's where it begins. And then it necessarily increases every moment of every day for the rest of eternity. Every bite tasting better than the previous bite. Every book more exciting than the last. Each adventure more exhilarating. Each relationship growing deeper and deeper and more enjoyable. On and on and on for all eternity. I mean, I just, just let, let me just role play for a second. Uh, 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 a life in the day of heaven, right? You, you, you wake up and you say, wow, I wonder what I'm going to do today. I mean, like yesterday, serious? Yesterday was the best day of all eternity for me. I wonder what's in store for me today. And then all of a sudden you get a little bing and you, you notice you got an update. And so you, you look uh, to check your email and it just has one word and it just says better. That's the agenda. You're kind of 
feeling a little bit hungry and you remember last night's meal and you're like, that was seriously the greatest thing I ever had. You scroll down to see what the menu is for the day. It just says better. That's it. Heaven is the place where every day is perfect and every tomorrow is better. That's heaven. The Sadducees' question failed to take into account the power of God. But that's not all. The rejection of the resurrection also demonstrated they didn't even know the scriptures. You see, in order to prove this, Jesus goes to the book of Moses in verse 26 through 27. He says, as for the dead being raised, if you're not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living you are quite wrong. I want you to notice how fiercely Jesus defends the truth of the resurrection. He begins by telling them that they're wrong. Then he defends why they're wrong. Then he ends by saying, you are quite wrong. Clearly, this is a topic Jesus cares about. This isn't one that he says, you know what, there's godly men and women that have different opinions about this, and so I want to I want to show some humility and charity towards those. That's not what Jesus thinks about this issue. He cares. For Jesus, the truth of the resurrection mattered. It was important. You know why it was important to him? Mark 10, 33 through 34 gives us a little hint. It says that the religious leaders, he tells his disciples, the religious leaders are going to deliver me over to the Gentiles and they will mock me and spit on me and flog me and kill me. And after three days, I will rise again. Jesus cared deeply about the resurrection because he knew he was going to die. You see, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when they came to him with spears, and clubs and lanterns. It was his belief in the resurrection that kept him from calling 10,000 angels to come and rescue him. As he stood before Pilate and he listened to the crowds crying out for his resurrection, for, for his death, for his crucifixion, and Pilate asked him if he had anything to say, he kept his mouth shut. It was his belief in the resurrection that allowed Jesus to go like a lamb to the slaughter silently. As he hung upon the cross and the religious leaders mocked him, as they told him, come down from the cross and we'll believe in you if you are the Son of God. It was his belief in the resurrection that kept him up there Peter tells us it was David's promise of Psalm 16, 9, and 10 that he clung to there on the cross where it says, Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. It was with this promise reverberating through his mind that Jesus used his last breath in Luke 23, 46 to say, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus is the passionate thinker that Kierkegaard always wanted to meet. He's the one who honestly and honorably expressed in his life what he believed to be true. And in so doing, Jesus proved once and for all who's right about the resurrection. 
Jesus, all, uh, he actually has three arguments for the resurrection. Two of them he shares with the Sadducees on Tuesday. One of them he waits to show on Sunday. Matthew describes Jesus' best argument for the resurrection in Matthew 28, verse 2. He says, And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. And then in verse 6, the angel announces to the women, Jesus is not here, for he is risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where you lay. Jesus did more than give a theological argument for the resurrection. He took on flesh, came to earth, died, and rose again. And he did that so that this morning, you and I could know for certain that the resurrection is true. Which leaves us with a question. What do you believe? What do you believe about the resurrection? Whose side are you going to take in this debate? Are you going to take the side of the Sadducees who, who doubted the power of God and thought the idea of a resurrection was absurd? Or will you take the side of Jesus who took on flesh and died and rose again? The stakes, the Bible tells us, they couldn't be any higher. Listen to 1 Corinthians 15, 16-18. Paul talks about the stakes, the importance of the resurrection. For if the dead are not raised... Well, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. And then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. I want to ask you this morning, if, do you believe that the resurrection is as important as Paul seems to say that it is? When Paul says, do you believe what Paul says in verse 17? Do you believe that if Jesus didn't rise again, that your faith is futile? That you're still in your sins? Do you believe, like he says in verse 18, that if Jesus didn't rise again, then all of your loved ones who have perished in Christ have perished forever, never to be seen or heard of again? If you're nodding your head, yes. If you're saying, yes, I, I believe that. I believe what Paul is saying about the importance of the resurrection. I think that's great. And that leaves me with just one final question. That question comes in the next verse. Do you believe what Paul teaches in verse 19 when he says, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Do you believe what Paul is saying here? You know what he's saying, right? He is saying that the resurrection is such a big deal that it ought to change everything about the way you live. In fact, it ought to make such an external difference in your life that if it didn't happen, you would be above all people the most to be pitied. Do you believe that? Many of you... You nodded your heads at verse 17. You nodded your heads at verse 18. Do you believe what Paul says in verse 19 as well? Do you believe that the resurrection ought to change our life so much that if it were not true, we would be the most to be pitied of all people? Not just it would be sad, but it would, we would be the most of all people to be pitied. If you believe that... 
then are you living that way? Maybe one way to ask the question is, do you know anyone that doesn't believe in the resurrection? Is there anyone that doesn't believe in the resurrection that that knows your life? If there is, do you have co-workers, family members, maybe that don't believe in the resurrection, friends, neighbors? If you know people that don't believe in the resurrection, let me ask you, do they pity you? They don't believe in the resurrection, so when they look at your life, they're looking at your life, not believing in the resurrection, are they looking at your life and pitying the way you're living? Let's be honest, how many of us are living in such utter dependence upon God and His resurrection promises that if they were not true, or if someone didn't believe they were true, they would pity us. This morning we've seen two different beliefs about the resurrection laid out, and Paul wants us to know that with each belief comes a radically different lifestyle. There is a lifestyle connected to each belief about the resurrection. The Sadducees show us in their lifestyle what it looks like to not believe in the resurrection. They're consistent. Paul describes their way of life in 1 Corinthians 15.32. He says, if the dead are not raised, let's just eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. If, the, if there's no resurrection, then the purpose of life must be to... Enjoy as many ordinary pleasures as you can and avoid as many unnecessary sufferings as you can. That's got to be the purpose of life. If there's no resurrection, just enjoy as many pleasures as you can and avoid as much suffering as you can. That's how the Sadducees lived. That's how Paul recommends anybody who doesn't believe in the resurrection lives. Sadly, that's also... How many Christians live? We live seeking to enjoy as many ordinary pleasures as we can and to avoid as much unnecessary suffering as we can. Rather than living a life that is pitied by unbelievers, many of us have chosen to live in such a way that there's very little difference at all. In fact, the truth is, many of us have lived lives that are more enviable than pitiable. In fact, there's even some people that, that think it's good for Christians to live an enviable life. You, you see, they, they think that one of the things we need to show the world is that you can be a Christian and be successful. You can be a Christian and be popular. You can be a Christian and, 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 and have wealth. You can be a Christian and have these things. We think if we can make Christianity attractive, That's a very different vision of what it looks like to be a Christian than Paul, right? Paul's saying true Christians are pitiable to non-Christians, not attractive to them. Not attractive, in, 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 not attractive without a value change, right? Once, once their values change, then, then it's beautiful. But, but as long as they're going to believe that there is no resurrection, the life of a Christian ought to seem pitiable. Let me just ask you a question. How many... People, can you find in the New Testament that the Bible commends as Christians who lived an enviable life? 
How many New Testament believers that the Bible commends lived an enviable life? Uh, Not the Apostle Paul, right? I mean, the Apostle Paul was once respected by his countrymen, once honored wherever he went, but he considered all of those enviable things that he had because of all of his hard work to be rubbish. And now he writes in 1 Corinthians 4, 11 through 13, To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless. We labor, working with our hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and still are like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. That sounds pretty pitiable to me. Peter leaves a successful fishing job in order to be crucified upside down. That's pitiable if there's no resurrection. Ultimately, what we find in the Bible is that if there is no resurrection, you know who's the most pitiable person in all of Scripture? If there is no resurrection, the most pitiable person in all of Scripture is certainly Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only person who didn't need to be born to be happy. You and I, we got to take the bad and the good. If we want the good, we got to take the bad, right? Jesus didn't. He had all the good in the world without ever having to take on human flesh with all of its weaknesses and limitations. He was completely happy in heaven millions and millions of years before he was ever born. Even as a human being, Jesus is the one person who never sinned. And because he never sinned, he never had to die. He never had to pay the wages of sin. He could have lived forever. With all of his power, he could have conquered all the kingdoms. He could have lived and ruled for centuries. He never had to go hungry. He could have made food any time. Never had to be betrayed by a follower, denied by a disciple. He never had to go to the cross where he bled and died, an excruciating and painful death. And he never had to drink even one drop, let alone the whole cup of the Father's wrath. Let me, I want you to think about this. Ultimately, what we find is the one who believed most strongly in the resurrection is the one person who never needed it for himself. You and I have a vested interest in believing in the resurrection. Our life's meaningless without it. Jesus didn't have to believe in the resurrection because he never had to die. No vested interest in it for himself. What I'm saying is, when the, when, the, when the arrogant Sadducees come up and try to tell him there is no resurrection, he could have just said, if that's how you want it, great, and ascended back to heaven. When you and I go through our life clinging to the things of this world, doing our best to live with the same values as everyone else, He could just look down and he could have said, if you love this world so much, if you're going to live like this life goes on forever, if that's where your heart is going to be, then fine. There doesn't need to be a resurrection. You guys look like you're doing fine living like there's not one. Why should I die to make one possible? But he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. 
Jesus went to the cross and died so that on his deathbed, a country singer who once didn't think life could get any better than this could have a chance to repent and to find forgiveness and experience everlasting life. He died so that people like you and I who have lived much of our life according to the values of this world might repent, might turn to him and not have to perish, but experience eternal life. Jesus lived the most pitiable life imaginable if there was no resurrection. But guess what you find? You find that even as he's living the most pitiable life, he doesn't ask for anybody's pity. The last night of his life, when he had every right to be getting a little bit of pity, what was he thinking? He was pitying his disciples. Don't let your heart be troubled. It's going to be okay. You're going to mourn for a little while because I'm going away, but I'm going to come back and your hearts are going to be glad. It's going to be okay. He's comforting them. He's thinking about them as he's got them images of the wrath of God and the cup that he's about to drink shooting through his mind. Somehow he finds a place to think about them. No one knew the wrath of God better than Jesus. He saw God throw fire on Sodom and Gomorrah. He watched him flood the world. He knew. He saw what it tasted like. He'd heard the screams and the cries and the anguish of sinners who had perished without believing. He knew what the to go out tasted like. Somehow he got those screams and those anguishes that he knew he was about to drink off to the side so that he could think about his disciples. He didn't want pity. He didn't want it because he didn't need it. He didn't need it because guess what? Three days later, he rose again from the dead. He's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He's been given a name that's above every name so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. He doesn't need pity. He doesn't need pity because the resurrection exists. And now he calls us to follow him. He calls us to live our lives as if the resurrection really happened. Colossians 3, 1 through 4 kind of shows us what this looks like. It says, if then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things of this earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears... And you will appear with him in glory. In a moment, we're going to sing a song that describes what this looks like. The song just says, I will not boast in anything. No gifts, no power, no wisdom. But I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Let's be a people who are willing to let go of everything the Sadducees clung to, to boast about the one thing they rejected. Now, some of you might be thinking that the only way to do this, you're like, oh, so this guy's coming. He wants us to sell all our stuff and go be martyrs somewhere in some foreign place. Uh, And so I guess I'm either going to have to do that or find a way to assuage my guilt somehow. So uh, that's not the only way to live this way, although it is a very commendable way to live this out. I want to just tell you how you can live this out here and now, tonight, today, this afternoon. I'll give you just a couple of suggestions. The Bible's actually full of them. But let me give you a few. Love. 
Love without requiring anything in return. Love people that are different from you. Love the lost. Love sinners. Love your family. Love the church. Love your neighbors. Forgive. Forgive when others sin against you. Don't build walls. Don't defend yourself. Don't seek safety in isolation. Don't retaliate. Don't get even. Serve others. Consider others better than yourself. Be radically generous. Be sacrificial. Rejoice in suffering instead of complaining about it. Share the gospel. Be bold. Speak the truth in love. Be hospitable to those who can never pay you back. Repent. Acknowledge your sin. Stop minimizing it. Receive God's grace. If you would simply do the things on this list, I can assure you it will flood your life with heartache. And you will be pitiable if there is no resurrection. Jesus is calling us to live our lives in such a way that can only be explained by the resurrection. I like, think of an image. Like he wants us to lean so hard on the resurrection that if you pulled it out, we'd fall on our faces. Instead, we're trying to like keep our balance and we got the resurrection here to fall on in case we ever get pushed. I just want to end by just warning you about one temptation that will come if you actually try to live this way. Uh, you see, like I said, if you, if you try to live this way, it will usher in heartache. And what happens is when you willingly choose to live in such a way that adds more heartache than is necessary, our first temptation is going to be to feel sorry for ourselves. I mean, think about it. When you love someone more than they love you back, when you forgive and then they do it again, when you sell yourself out for God and bad things happen, you're going to be thinking, I didn't need to do this. I could have been fine. This, this, all this pain came because I followed God. Why is he allowing that? I thought if I followed him, things would go better, that they would be easier. What's going on? And we try to assuage our pain with pity for ourselves. We look at other people and we think, yeah, I could have what you have too. Except for I believe in the resurrection and we envy them and pity ourselves. Often those Christians who make the most sacrifices for the gospel are the most tempted towards self-pity. But for all of you who sometimes find yourself sacrificing for God and then feeling sorry for yourself, I want to just leave you with a passage from 1 Corinthians 15, 19-20. Listen, it says, If in Christ we have hope in this life only... We are of all people most to be pitied. That means your self-pity makes sense if there's no resurrection. But if in fact Christ has, but in fact, not if, but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So there's nothing to pity. You're not pitiable, even if you're suffering, even if you're a martyr, even if you make radical sacrifice. You're not pitiable because you're making the right choice. 
Hear me, self-pity is only necessary if there is no resurrection. What I'm trying to say is some of us live like there's no resurrection by living enviable lives. Others of us make radical sacrifices for God as if we believe in the resurrection, but then we show that we're not really believing in it because we feel sorry for ourselves. Satan's always trying to get us to disbelieve the resurrection before or after sacrifice. He doesn't care. So before it, We believe in it enough to make radical sacrifices. And after those sacrifices hurt like crazy, we believe it enough not to have to feel sorry for ourselves. Remember, when Christ appears, all those who have trusted in him will appear with him in glory. There's nothing pitiable about that. So let's follow Jesus. Let's follow Jesus in a way that only makes sense if there's a resurrection. And when things get hard and you're tempted to feel sorry for yourself, let's remember soon we will appear with him in glory. Every tear will be wiped away and we will be ushered into the place where every day is perfect, every sorrow forgotten, and every tomorrow better. Amen? All right, let's pray.